Look up idiots in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month, I'm exploring the films of Terrence Malick, as recommended by Andrew DeSelm, and this week's episode, I'll be talking about Malick's directorial debut, the 1973 film... Badlands. Apologies um, up front for two things. If I sound a little bit different, I'm recovering or trying to get over a, a cold, which I hope goes away very quickly because I am uh, this week off on vacation to the land of the frozen tundra, uh, Minnesota, so I don't need uh, to have my physical condition exacerbated uh, more so than the cold will already exacerbate it. And also because it is currently in the low 30s here. Uh, it is January and winter, after all. Of course, my uh, frequent co-conspirator, the um, pre-war heat uh, radiator, will occasionally be chiming in as it has been basically all day. So I'm going to apologize for any kind of um, hisses, clanks, and bangs, which uh, if you're a long-time listener, you are already used to at this point. So, um, Terrence Malick's Badlands. Um, I have... Two main thoughts uh, uh, about this one, um, and and I guess the the which one should I begin with? Um, well, I mean they're they're kind of uh, hand in hand, really. Um, the first one is basically like this is a really unusual and or interesting approach to telling the story of two serial killers, um, which I think can also be tied into uh, the idea that. Badlands could be a film that I could understand uh, if, if you come away from it, if you think either, wow, this was a director with a singular vision for this movie, or wow, this was a guy who really seemed to have no idea what he was doing. I could understand, honestly, both approaches, because um, certainly doing some research and kind of uh, digging into the production of this film, in addition to what Andrew and I talked about uh it seems like it was actually a mixture of both, um, that uh, he maybe knew what he wanted to do with the film, but as a first-time filmmaker had no idea how to do it. Um, but I guess before we kind of get into the, the how the sausage is made portion of it, I, I kind of want to extrapolate a bit on my first idea, that one of this is unusual uh, or interesting approach to telling the story of serial killers. Um, there's a, you know... This this would not be uh, the first film that I've ever seen that uh, grapples with serial, serial killers in a not entirely straightforward manner. Um, of course, you have, uh, you know, Oliver Stone's um, Natural Born Killers. You have um, David Fincher's um, Zodiac um, and, a, a, you know, a, a, a countless array of other titles. Um, so it's, it's not as though I, I'm one who is upset by movies that involve or, or revolve around serial killers. That's certainly not the case, but um, when it, at least when it comes to those two films that I mentioned, um, Natural Born Killers was certainly, you know, kind of played up all sorts of um, elements surrounding them, um, their creation, and of course those were two fictional people, um, obviously. Um, but there was a, a, a good, uh, you know, in, um, I should preface this by saying I, I'm saying this as someone who hasn't seen Natural Born Killers in a long, long time. Um, 
But uh, Natural Born Killers kind of instead kind of focused on the factors, uh, the the outside factors, family, media, all sorts of uh, other things, the criminal justice system, which would kind of explain why these people were the way that they were. And so because they were the protagonists of the film, we kind of rooted for them, um, but also uncomfortably so in the sense of, um, you know, we, we knew that they that they were... There was something more to them, but we also we also were very aware that they were evil people. Whereas Zodiac, you know, you weren't following the Zodiac killer. You know, he was not the main character of the film. But um, you, so you do get a a, a POV approach to him as uh, you know as as pursued by the other characters, and also kind of um, Fincher highlights a lot more of the the tone and the mood of the. San Francisco area uh, during the reign, for lack of a better word, of the Zodiac Killer, and you kind of get a good sense of the the mood and how this killer was sort of um, really sort of had like he hung as a, or he was a cloud that kind of hung over the um, the area. Um, Badlands is I don't know, and, and I guess uh, it's strange because I don't think the film either celebrates them. Their, their characters, the you know, based on um, two uh, real life people, uh, Carol Fugate, I believe, and Carl Starkweather, uh, loosely based on them. Their their real story, if you want to get into it, is actually a lot darker and more macabre than this one. A lot more violence and a lot more killing. Um, it, it doesn't celebrate these people, but it also doesn't condemn them. The 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 thing that I really kind of saw, or or Malik's approach, really just sort of just sort of was they just sort of were they just existed um everyone just is and that's not just saying them either but really the the entire world um for lack of a better word of this film all the characters all the towns everything just sort of is you kind of get this sense of a a pervasive sense of stagnation or not even stagnation but just sort of um existential um stuckness um and then i should also say that I, I i'm saying this as someone who is a bit skewed in his perspective i was um born and raised i've lived my entire life along the northeast like not too far from new york city and then in new york city so there's this idea of this larger war uh, world different cultures and vibrancy has always been near me surrounding me i've always sort of um i have never grown up and lived in the, the the kind of specific small town environment in which Badlands um, takes place, in which the, the two characters um, not only first meet, um, but also in which they, they then kind of try to uh, escape and, and, and cause a ruckus throughout, if you will. Um, it, it really is that kind of town where, um, or, or kind of life where, like the, the, the center of town is just this small little street where there might be a, a bar and a general store and um, everyone just sort of exists in this self-perpetuating cycle of we are born here, we grow up, we start working to have kids who will then be born and grow up and start working. And it, and it just kind of get, gets this sense without even, without Malik having to kind of hammer that point home of just the sense of um, everyone who is in this world just sort of is. Um, and for someone like me, that that watching that kind of drove me a little bit crazy. Uh, like I, you know, I, I'm watching these characters just kind of mosey down the street and have this idle kind of conversation, which doesn't seem to hint at something greater, and just sort of like is 
mundane and I and I'm I'm kind of crawling out of my skin while I'm watching it. And I just kind of want to escape and get out of there and, and, and just in, in a way I also want them to get out of there and do something else. Um and, and and Malik doesn't do this like he doesn't hammer the point home, but you just kind of see it as it goes along, specifically through the dialogue in in the sense of how the dialogue isn't really more than just what they're saying. Um, I can understand, I, I guess, or, or I'd like to understand, I suppose, if someone could would disagree with me and kind of say that there's a um, a poetry to the language, if there's actually the things um, that uh, Kit and Holly are, are saying to each other actually are symbolic or indicative of something larger, but I don't see it that way. I, I see instead of just the things that Kit and Holly are saying to each other are just that. Everything exists on the surface. Everything just sort of is. Um, I'm trying to think of some specific examples. Like, for instance, and this is very late in the film, but after Kit is arrested and he's driving in the police car and he's got a hat and he's got that hat on, the police officer takes it off his head, throws it out the window, and Kit's response is, you threw my hat out the window. <laughs> well, yeah, I know. We, we, we just saw that. Um, and, 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 and when... But and that's, that's all that happens of course he just threw his hat out the window but it just that's the thing is it, sort of nothing whether it be dialogue whether it be actions whether it be the narrative nothing is really indicative of anything larger than where they currently are who they currently are and what the situation currently is for someone like me that fa that, that felt inescapable um i, I felt kind of suffocated um, like, I wanted to get out of this town. I wanted them to do literally anything else. Um, I wanted them to talk about something, I don't know, talk about a book that you love, or talk about your dreams for the future, or just talk about something beyond just what is currently going on and what you are currently feeling. You get the sense, or at least I got the sense, that um, Holly ended up leaving Kit not because of any moral quandary that she was in, not because she finally kind of got sick of everything, or, or no, I guess because she eventually got sick of everything that, that, that was going on, not because she was overcome with emotion or a conflict of morality, but just like she was bored and just didn't want to do it anymore. Um, and there's a sort of a nonchalance about everything they do, including... The murder, like it's kind of all the murders they do, like it's kind of done on a whim. I mean, I guess you could uh, make the argument that Kit's murdering of Holly's father was sort of a crime of passion, if you will. He wanted her, the father did not want to let go, and he sort of like, you know, didn't mean to kill him, but he does. But then everything after that just kind of done on a whim, just because. Um, when they when they later on kill Cato, the, vo the voiceover even says like, you know, he never did say why he did that. Um, when he puts the two people in the cellar outside and just kind of fires down in, into them, you know, not seeing if he if he's hit them or not. Why does he do that? I don't know. Maybe he doesn't know. Maybe no, none of them know why they're doing any of this. They just sort of are doing it. Um, and that led me to sort of kind of believe or think that the reason these characters, and not the, the real-life people that they're based on, but the reason these characters became killers was just what else was there to do, basically. Um, Kit was working as a garbage man. Um, Holly was in school. But for what? I mean, working, you know, he worked as a garbage man just to make money, just to do something. Uh, when... when Kit is, is speaking to her on the porch, and he says, uh, what are you studying? Spanish. 
Okay, but for what purpose? I'm not saying that she has to study Spanish to become some famous interpreter, but just I really get that sense because conversations, they, they don't linger in them. They don't become something bigger. It just sort of is like question, answer, pause, move on to something else. Everything just sort of is exactly as it is. You just get the feeling that there is nothing larger. There is nothing bigger in regards to um, what they have planned or even just existentially in this world. There is nothing more than what currently is. Um, and I think in a way, despite the fact that this film is shot beautifully, it emphasizes that sort of thing that yes, there are these sweeping landscapes and vistas as they're, as they're on the run and they're, and they're, they're running towards the, the mountains of Saskatchewan to kind of get away from the law but when you see a lot of that shooting, it's a lot of wide shots, it's a lot of majesty, and within those, the framing of this wonderful landscape and this majesty, they are just these small little characters. They are nothing. They are insignificant set against the backdrop of this grandiose creation. I, I don't know if, it, if I think it's a nihilism as much as just sort of a existential insignificance. And it seems like Kit was the one who was always aware of that. As he says at the end, like, as, as the police have to ask him, why did you do it? I don't know, he says. I always wanted to be a criminal, just not one this big. You know, he kind of seems to accept the fact that he's not going to be anything more than he is. I mean, he's got no education, he's got no family, he's got no skills, he just kind of is this person, so he may as well just do whatever. And it seems like Holly kind of gives up on them sort of when she sort of finally realizes, yeah, this is all that there is. And I'm just kind of bored with this now. I felt so existentially angsty watching this film. Um, and it, it, it was, like I said, an unusual approach for a film about serial killers because I was a little bit worried when I was watching that, um, you know, we do kind of see their romance unfold. And it's certainly not a romance for the ages. There's nothing overly spectacular about it. In fact, there's a lot of just kind of banality about it. Um, I was a little bit worried that this film was going to glorify them. I mean, if you have the Criterion uh, edition of this movie, the, the opening, or opening, the front cover says, Burning Love on the Great Plains in 1959. It would sort of make it seem like this is a story about these great historic lovers like Bonnie and Clyde or Romeo and Juliet. And it's not that. The romance is actually kind of underwhelming i mean when they have sex for the first time the response to it is basically like is that how it's all that it's supposed to be yeah oh well that wasn't much like even this romantic gesture of physical affection is just not seen as anything more than just that's it and um you know and, and even the the idea of, of getting in this relationship just kind of seems to be no more than like well that's kind of what we're supposed to do right I, I have a, a girl now and that's and that's it that's us there there's just this once I, like I, I've already said this overwhelming sense of everything that is just is and there's nothing more to it than that this is going to sound incredibly weird but in a way if he had survived this long to see it I kind of feel like HP Lovecraft would enjoy this film just because of that idea of there's a cosmic insignificance to these people, um, 
to all these people, not just the two of them, but everyone in this movie. I mean, it's sort of like, what are they working towards? What What is their larger goals? Are they going to get out of here? They're just kind of existing within this world, within the frames that we see them. And that's basically it. And that made me so uncomfortable, not emotionally uncomfortable, but just in the sense of like, I was crawling, like I said, I was kind of crawling out of my skin. Like I wanted to get out of here. I wanted to see a, a, a skyline of, of city. I wanted to see other cultures. I wanted to hear a different language. I just wanted something more than what was in this movie, um, or at least I should say of this world that Malik had created. And this sort of then ties into this, this other idea of this thing. Like it, it would seem like every element is supporting this idea of this, this existential insignificance of just this sort of, is and being that it the implication would be there is a filmmaker who has a very clear vision and direction behind that and knows exactly what to do for the film to support this and yet as Andrew talked about that wasn't the case this film had three cinematographers because the first two both left and investors were upset, and it seemed like everyone was very upset because no one had any idea what this first make this first time filmmaker was doing, um, including the first time filmmaker. So, here's a little bit of uh, trivia that I want to read for, to to you from um, IMDb, uh, the Internet Movie Database. The article "Absence of Malik," written by David Handelman and published in California Magazine, stated that Terrence Malik filmed this picture quote in Eastern Colorado between August and October of 1972. He reportedly gave investors no guarantee of completion or distribution, paid himself no salary, and his actors and crew not much more. The costumer, mechanic, and Malik himself all ended up acting in the film. As not only director but producer, Malik suddenly found himself dealing with insurance costs, auto maintenance unionizers, and shotgun-wielding landowners and a mutinous crew. His first cinematographer, Brian Probin, wouldn't shoot what Malik wanted, claiming the scenes wouldn't cut together. Probin's assistant, Tak Fujimoto, who would later go on to shoot many M. Night Shyamalan films, I added that, that wasn't part of the quote, then took over but also left. Some equipment was damaged by the film's fire sequence. When a special effects man suffered severe burns, Malik, unable to afford a helicopter, sent him to the distant hospital by car, and many crew members quit in protest. For the last two weeks of the shoot, the entire crew consisted of the director, the director's wife, and a local high school student. Then Malik ran out of money whilst editing and had to take a rewrite job to finish his movie. When shown to the New York Film Festival selection board months later, the print broke, the sound was muddy, the picture was out of focus. Yet Badlands landed the prestigious closing night slot and drew raves. Warners paid $950,000 for the distribution rights. Now, I never want to be the one to judge a film based on what happened behind the scenes. I am someone who enjoys the film Waterworld, even though that was infamously disastrous. Um, I think you should be able to separate the two, but with that in mind, with this sort of bumbling uh, and, and, and meandering production in mind, you kind of can see that on the film. Um, because I, I could understand how someone could also watch this movie and be like, this movie, nothing, I, I personally hate the, side note here, I personally hate it when the criticism of a film is nothing happens, 
because that's not true. Because even if there's not too much plot, there are certainly wonderful things that a director, cinematographer, editor, everything is sort of like doing. So while nothing is seemingly happening, there is a lot of things happening. But I can understand how someone could sit with this movie and, and watch it and just feel like this is the longest 90 minutes of their life. And just a sense of this is building towards nothing. What is this? What is this saying? What it, What is happening here that is supposed to be keeping me interested? And I understand those comments and those critiques because um, I, I, I don't necessarily think we're supposed to be or we're supposed to relate to these characters. I don't necessarily think we are supposed to be interested in them, but I think there is some element of relatability, at least in the sense of if you adhere to the idea of a a sort of existential insignificance, um, which I guess is contradictory to what we also talked about in, in, in Malik kind of being raised religious and sort of being somewhat of a spiritual person, as I'm sure I'm going to see a lot of in the tree of life. But I also think that, um, that idea of, of, of trying to find meaning in something which is so tragic, such as serial killings, perhaps, um, it can be such a fruitless, tragic effort that you that one can also that can often um, lead to this uh, this this belief and this understanding of there is really no significance or meaning to this world. Things just sort of happen. It could be chaos. It could be beauty. It could be all of them tied together. Um, but there's not a, a lot of significance or meaning to any of it. Um. It is uh, just as sort of, you know, if you kind of read um, Carl Sagan's The Pale Blue Dot, I can understand how you can see those sweeping vistas of the Saskatchewan mountains um, that um, Kit and Holly are running towards and just seeing how they are framed uh, against it, but then also just kind of the recognition of these things have been here for probably millions of years. Who am I that I am such, so significant or so much more special than this creation which is unfolded in front of me? I'm not necessarily saying that that is the attitude that I have, but that's the kind of mood and tone that I got from this movie, and I can understand how people can arrive at such a mentality, including the characters in this movie, who only really find significance, who only really find celebrity, who only really find a way out of their living situation because they take up a life of crime and the the cover would say a burning love and sure they you know we hear from holly that they are in love but we don't see a whole lot of it or at least love the love that they display instead sort of comes across as just sort of something obligatory like well i guess we have to be in love because that's what two people who spend a lot of time together and are members of the opposite sex in 1958 do that's we have to be in love, right? Um, there, there's so much which is done out of out of uh, not even uh, you know sometimes out of obligation, but also just sometimes out of like, well, what else is there to do? Um, if it weren't for the fact that they killed five people, would anyone know Kit or Holly? I mean, I also kind of uh, what I brought to it when I sort of pretended and imagined in my mind that. There's a car chase near the end when Kit is caught. Uh, he's being chased by the sheriff. 
Um, it's a somewhat exciting sequence, I'll, I'll be honest, at least a more exciting sequence than you would expect to have in a Terrence Malick film. And I really got the impression that like this is going to be the most exciting moment of this sheriff's entire life. That being this sheriff in this rural area, this is going to be by far the most excitement he'll see all year. Arguably, this might be the most excitement he'll see in his entire career as a law enforcement official. And it is just sort of this sense of like they they came in, they set the world ablaze, uh, they were media sensations, and then they got caught, and that was just sort of it. And that was sort of the peak of what they expected themselves to be, basically. I'm not celebrating that, and I'm not saying... I'm not condemning that, but that just sort of seems to be the thing in this world is Kit and Holly, they just were. They did what they did just because there was nothing else to do. And at the end of the day, they just were. At the end of the day, this town is going to continue being this small town. People in it are going to continue just doing what they do without any real consideration for... What does this mean on a larger scale? What does this mean about my future? What does this mean about how I fit into the world? The world that they have just is. And I found it effective, but I also found it really kind of infuriating. (laughs) Once again, not in the sense of this was bad or poorly done, but just, ah, that's this is not the kind of film that I get excited about. It's not the kind of film that I enjoy watching. I do think that there is a a sure director um, behind it all. But I can also understand how you have this first-time director who has this idea, but maybe doesn't know how to express it because it's certainly not exciting for a viewer for the most part. So just imagine trying to be a crew member and be directed to sort of shoot something, record something, stage something, in which you just sort of like, hey... Create for me existential insignificance. It's a. It might be admirable on a craftsman level, but it's certainly not exciting, and it's certainly not um, the kind of stuff that uh, makes me feel alive when I watch my movies. But if it's something you enjoy, uh, something you resonate with, um, that's awesome uh, for you. And and I I was actually kind of trying to fight back my impression of the film because I, I I was thinking well I know that eventually I'm going to watch a movie called The Tree of Life which is going to be grandiose and, and, and try and tie all of creation and mankind together and uh, and I know I'm eventually going to watch The Thin Red Line which is going to be this beautiful sweeping grandiosely shot film so how can this existentially insignificant kind of borderline nihilistic story tie into themes that the guy who made those two movies are are also making or also how do those all connect with each other and it didn't really come to a good answer other than um what i kept thinking about was the one line that i know from the thin red line which is one that they i I think used to end the trailers on uh which is sean penn talking to someone and saying what difference you think you can make one man and all this madness. And that sort of speaks to this thing of what I'm talking about, this theme of what I'm talking about, of who do you think you are changing anything, or who do you think you are being significant in this otherwise uncaring, just chaotic 
randomness. All you are is all you are. Just operating within this world that all it is is what all it is. Um, and so I'm, I'm actually kind of curious to kind of keep an eye on that as I move forward because what I thought, I, I guess, and maybe I, I misread something in the conversation with Andrew, I guess I um, anticipated something that was a bit more life or beauty affirming. Um, what I found instead was something which was a little bit more cynical, um, but also at the same time not ignorant or dismissive of beauty. Um, because even if you are no more or, or can be no more than this world has to offer, and even if there is all this world has to offer is what you see, then sometimes that can be um, quite wonderful. Um, and now that I've thoroughly upset myself, I think I have to um, <laughs> end this episode. I, I wish I could link to um, the Absence of Malik article, and unfortunately um, it is from uh, a now defunct California magazine, so the, uh, I don't believe the article exists anymore. Um, I believe it is on audiobook, so I'll try and look up something to sort of link to for that. Um, if you want to watch or rewatch Badlands, um, it is one of the few films that I cover which is not available uh, for rental on Amazon, um, but it's available for rental or purchase on iTunes, uh, on Google Play, on YouTube, and on Vudu. Um, and of course, uh, it is also available on uh, a, a quite a wonderful Criterion uh, restoration, which is why I, uh, which is where I watched it. Um, and um, uh, one of the fun special features, which was the one that I watched to kind of get a bit more. Um, Context, I guess, historical context on the true story upon which this story is loosely based. Uh, there, there's an old 22-minute uh, episode of this old show called American Justice, um, which uh, details the case of um, of the real life uh, Carl Starkweather and um, and Carol um, Fugate, um, which is a lot more bloody and disgusting than um, than this film would lead you to believe. I believe in this movie there's a body count of six. Um, if you're counting the two people that are in the cellar that we don't actually see killed or shot. Um, and I believe in real life these people killed about 12 people. I mean, certainly a lot more than six, one of them being um, a two-and-a-half-year-old. So, horrible story. Weird to think that Malik was, uh, would want to adapt such a story. And then also even weirder, or maybe not so weird, um, to think that he would um, approach retelling that story in such a... Um, existentially stagnant and insignificant way so um always easy to get in touch with me if you want to agree and or disagree with me uh email me at you do movies badly at gmail.com um find back episodes of the show on um i do movies badly.podbean.com and on battleshipretention.com where you can chime in also uh on itunes as well um always curious to hear from you especially as we um get through this uh this long cold month together with some long and occasionally um, emotionally cold movies from uh, Terrence Malick. So um, thank you for listening to this episode and be sure to tune in next week where I'll be covering Terrence Malick's 1998's The Thin Red Line and where hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.